You are now listening to the July 31st broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have the seven signs, sermon, and the God of Abraham. First, let's begin with the seven signs. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with The Seven Signs. During the last few sessions, we have been discussing the signs that Jesus revealed to us as they appear in the book of John. These are the signs people typically call miracles because they look amazing and wondrous in terms of how they affect their lives. They get to drink new wine and get to heal sick people. However, these signs are much more They're intended to offer hope to people, and hope comes by believing that Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ, and gaining a vision for an eternal life. So far, we have shared two signs. The first sign was the turning of water into wine at the wedding in Cana. The intent behind this sign was to reveal that Jesus was the promised Messiah. The second sign involves healing a sick son of a royal official. Jesus did that just by speaking from Galilee without traveling to Capernaum, where the sick boy was. This was in fulfillment of the Old Testament promise in Isaiah chapter 9 that the light of the Messiah will start to shine from the land near the Sea of Galilee. These signs witness that Jesus is the Messiah. Today, we're going to share the story of Jesus' third sign that appears in John chapter 5. The location is a pond called the Pond of Bethesda. At the time, the pond was a special place for a lot of the sick people. It was believed that now and then, an angel would come down and stir up the water, and whoever stepped into the water first would be healed of the sickness. Needless to say, when Jesus arrived there, He saw many sick people around the pond yearning to be the first to get in the water when the angel comes. In particular, a man appears that had been laid there for 38 years. Jesus approached him and commanded him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately, this man who had been sick for 38 years became well and walked off just as Jesus commanded. This is a famous story that many of us may have already heard about. Let us now try to get behind this miracle and consider the significance of its meaning as a sign. What is the sign trying to teach us? We might wonder why Jesus picked a person that had been sick for a long time. It could be that it was to demonstrate that the length of a sickness was no obstacle to Jesus in his power. If we said that, we would be correct. No matter how old the sickness is or how the person is, that's not a problem for Jesus. Jesus' power transcends the time length or severity of a sickness. However, do you think John wrote these long 47 verses in John chapter 5 just to merrily tell us that Jesus can heal the sickness no matter how old or how sick? 
The answer to this question lies in a comment that John made that the purpose of his writing these signs was to reveal that Jesus is the Son of God and he's the Christ. If so, our attention should turn away from the amazing appearance of this miracle at that moment, but to the subsequent events that happened afterwards. With that in mind, we should consider the entire event of John chapter 5 as a whole. Considering the context and how things unfolded, the purpose of this particular sign of healing the man who had been sick for 38 years was not the healing itself, but in the subsequent conversations between Jesus and the Jews after the man was healed. For one, the man did not even know who Jesus was, and unlike most other sick people, we do not see him confessing his faith that Jesus could heal him. Other sick people in all the books of the gospel were consistently portrayed as having taken the initiative to come to see Jesus to be healed. They all asked Jesus to heal them. Jesus would then grant their request and acknowledge, your faith has healed you. None of that appears in the healing of this man by the pond. When Jesus arrived at the pond of Bethesda, he saw the sick man that was lying there. Jesus went to him. Then he asked the sick man, Do you wish to get well? Then the sick man's response was rather curious. He didn't say, Yes, Lord, I wish to be well. Rather, he proceeded to offer a long explanation for why he could not get well for 38 long years. Then he pointed out, that there was no one to put him in the water when the angel comes to stir the water. Someone else would go in first, and there was no chance for him to be healed. The man did not know who Jesus was. Therefore, he did not have any expectation or hope in Jesus. He was just loathing the condition he was in and maybe hoped that Jesus would volunteer to stick around to help him get in the pond first the next time the angel comes. Apparently, he had no idea one greater than the angels was speaking with him. Jesus, on his part, also did not say much to the man. He did not say, your faith has healed you, or I see great faith. He simply said, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. The sick man was immediately healed, and he did what he was told and walked away. That much seemed transactional. However, their story did not end there. There was trouble brewing. The day the man was healed was the Sabbath, as stated in John chapter 5, verse 9. And because the healing was done on the Sabbath, there would be a clash between Jesus and the Jews. At the time, in their zeal to keep the laws of Moses, in the most strictest sense, the Pharisees made up a long list of rules, which were commonly called the tradition of the elders. Among them were things that they were not supposed to do on the Sabbath. Here are some of the things people were prohibited to do on the Sabbath. They were sowing, farming, harvesting, threshing, baking a bread, knitting dough, shearing a sheep, starting a fire, extinguishing a fire, etc. The list goes on and on. 
Another thing that was explicitly prohibited on the Sabbath was moving something to another place over 2,000 cubits away. 2,000 cubits is about one kilometer or 0.56 of a mile. Given this rule, how do you think the Jews reacted to this man carrying the pallet that he had been lying on? The man had been sick for 38 years and he was just healed. He simply carried off his pallet and he was told by the person that healed him. As such, he left the premise because he no longer had a reason to stay there. And to that man, instead of celebrating, the Jews hurled accusations. In chapter 5, verse 10, they said, It is the Sabbath, and it's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. The healed man answered the Jews, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. The Jews continued to interrogate him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? The man told him that he had no idea who this man was. Obviously, the Jews cared less about the healing of a man who had been sick for 38 years. They did not seem to notice at all this amazing sign. Rather, to them, someone moving something from one place to another on the Sabbath was a bigger deal. Violating their superficial rule about carrying something on the Sabbath was more astonishing and shocking to them. After that encounter between the man healed and the Jews, Jesus went to see him. Jesus revealed himself to him by telling him that the one who healed him was Jesus. So once he found out the identity of the persons that had healed him, he went to the Jews and told them that it was Jesus. Because of this, the Jews started to persecute Jesus. They simply did not approve of seeing a man violating their petty rules about the Sabbath. They decided to come after Jesus, who, in their opinion, instigated the violation and threatened their way of life. This is how the clash between Jesus and the Jews started to heat up. What do you think Jesus said to them to defend his actions? We will address that next time in our series on Signs of Jesus. I hope you'll have a chance to read John chapter 5 during the coming week and get to know Jesus deeper. This concludes today's episode from Signs of Jesus. We'll see you next week. And God bless. Bye.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is conscience, what it is, and why in the world does it matter. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. If you have a Bible, and I hope you or somebody around you does, you can look on with, let me invite you to open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Feel free to use table of contents if you need to. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So what I want to do today is I want to show you what the Bible as a whole teaches about the conscience. A good, clean conscience is critical to your life. Let me start there in at least five ways. So a good, clean conscience is critical in your life to, one, intimacy with God. So Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22 says, Let us draw near to God with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. You see that? If you want to draw near to God, then you need a clean conscience. Obviously, you won't experience intimacy with God, closeness to God if your conscience is ignoring God. But you also won't experience intimacy with God 
if your conscience is constantly plagued with guilt before God, I believe many Christians listening to me right now, even really mature Christians, lack intimacy, closeness with God because you often feel a low-level sense of guilt before God. Some of you from things that happened a long time ago in your life. Others of you from a constant feeling that you aren't measuring up to all that God wants you to be. He's never satisfied with you. And as a result, you are missing out on the intimacy, closeness, the nearness that God has designed for your life. So keep going here. A biblical understanding of conscience is critical to success in life, which I would define here as peace and joy and happiness and full, abundant life, the kind of life that only comes from intimacy with God. So I'm not talking about success in terms of achieving a certain position or making a certain amount of money. All kinds of people achieve position and make money in ways that you wonder if they have any conscience at all. And in the end, their position and their possessions don't lead to the lasting peace and joy and happiness and full life they were hoping for because achievement and money can't produce those things. But a good, clean conscience before God can. To be able to say what Paul said in Acts chapter 23, verse 1, brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Paul's saying that from prison. Hardly a picture of prosperity in this world, but he has a peace, a joy, a contentment, happiness, a fullness of life that nothing in this world can take away from him. Don't you want that? A good, clean conscience before God is critical to that. A good conscience is also critical to unity in the church. We're going to see this in 1 Corinthians 8 more next week when we look at how different Christians at Corinth had differences of conscience. And they needed to learn how to love one another amidst those differences. A good, clean conscience is critical to mission in the world. So we'll talk about this more when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. But Paul, who's writing 1 Corinthians, tells us he's willing to completely recalibrate his conscience to the extent God's word allows it and totally relinquish his rights in order to reach more people with the gospel. Now, here's the deal. We've been using this word conscience, but we've not explicitly defined what that word means. So let me put a definition of conscience up here on the screen, and then I'll show you where it comes from in God's word. Conscience is your sense of what you believe is right and wrong. Conscience is your sense of what you believe is right and wrong. Now, in order to unpack that, Let's read through the eight times that we see conscience in 1 Corinthians. So if you have your Bible, we're going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7. And I would encourage you to circle every time you see the word conscience. And we'll start to put all this together. Follow along with me, starting in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak, is defiled. 1 Corinthians 8.8, 8. food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Verse 10, for if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Verse 12, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience 
when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Now, we're going to talk more about the context, what's going on with eating meat, food, idols, all that's going on in this passage. But let's just, again, keep listening to how the Bible talks about conscience. Flip over two chapters to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23. So now in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23, almost like bookend. So this is how this series of three chapters starts in verse 8. Now, chapter 10, verse 23, the Bible says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. It's an interesting phrase, the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without any raising any question on the ground, there it is again, of conscience. Verse 28, but if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. Verse 29, I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks. So eight different times, you should have conscience circled now. So what does God mean when he uses that term? What do we learn about conscience from God's word? Well, follow along. One, your conscience is personal. You see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, talked about their conscience and his conscience. What we just read in 1 Corinthians 10, 29, Paul says, I don't mean your conscience, but his. So conscience varies from person to person. No one person's conscience is exactly the same as another person's conscience. We know that no one's conscience is exactly the same as someone else, which then causes you to start to realize that your conscience is not just personal, your conscience is imperfect. Like no one has it all right, all the time, except for one. There's only one person whose conscience has been perfectly calibrated to God's definition of right and wrong. His name is Jesus, and you are not him. Your conscience, your sense of right and wrong, does not perfectly match God's will, which means that we all have room for growth and maturity in our conscience, which leads to the reality that your conscience can change. Your sense of what is right and wrong can get better or it can get worse. To use language from 1 Corinthians, it can get stronger or weaker. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, Paul writes, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So using this language, we aim for what? For a good conscience. And we're aiming for that. A conscience that aligns more and more and more with God's will. Which leads to the next point. Your conscience needs calibration. Because we are all sinners, we're all prone to think and to act according to our ways instead of God's ways, which means we need to continually calibrate our conscience, our understanding of right and wrong around God's definition of right and wrong. You may have a clear conscience about lying or gossiping or looking at pornography, but your conscience is not good at that point because it's out of alignment with God's word. You need to recalibrate your conscience around the reality that all of these things are sins against God. I mentioned Martin Luther earlier. Many of you know there were significant parts of his conscience, most notably his anti-Semitism, that were completely out of line 
with God's word and extremely destructive, which is why we all need to start right here in alignment with God's word. And then second, to calibrate our conscience in tune with God's spirit, knowing there are many thoughts we have or decisions we make or we don't have a direct word from God in the Bible. But this is the good news. God's not left us alone. In this effort aimed to follow him with a good, clean conscience, God has given us his Holy Spirit to live in us, to guide us, direct us, to give us wisdom and discernment, to calibrate our sense of right and wrong, to give us the sense of this is good or this is not good. This is wise. This is unwise. And we're also not alone in the sense that our conscience can be calibrated in humble learning from and selfless love for other people. I think of people in my life who have helped me see things I didn't see and learn things I didn't know about what was good or not good, wise or unwise. And we all need this from others. It's part of what I love about being in a church family where not everybody looks and thinks exactly like me. As we'll see more next week, we need to calibrate our conscience in selfless love for other people. More on that then. In all of this, think of your conscience like a guide. And again, we are not talking about Pinocchio and Jiminy Cricket here. We're talking about a God-given guide to all the things we talked about earlier, to intimacy with God, success in life, unity in the church, mission in the world, and living and dying for what matters most. Ultimately, living and dying for what brings God the most glory. As we'll see right after all this talk of conscience in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul writes, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We want consciences that are leading us to live for the glory of God. Likewise, Hebrews 13, 18 says, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. Listen to that phrase. Your conscience is like a guide to acting honorably in everything. Think about it this way. Looking forward, your conscience warns you before you do wrong and urges you to do right. Your conscience is, by God's grace, this sense, hopefully driven by God's word and God's spirit, that says this would be good to think or desire or do, or this would not be good to think, desire, or do. And then looking backward, your conscience convicts you when you've done wrong and commends you when you've done right. Are we starting to see what a good gift our conscience is? Like, where would we be without this moral compass that God has given to us by his grace? If I'm about to think, desire, do something that is not good for me, not good for others, I want a reliable conscience that says, stop. Or if I think, desire, or do something that's not good for me or good for others, then I want a reliable conscience that says, you should not have done that. Every one of us needs a conscience that is a good guide. And every one of us needs to realize that our conscience needs a guard. Realize your conscience needs a guard against two things in particular. And this comes straight from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. I'll put it up here on the screen, then we'll come back to this. Paul writes, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons 
through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So based on this passage, we realize we need to guard our consciences against two things, against one, insensitivity, that language in First Timothy chapter 4 of a seared conscience refers to people who have so ignored their God-given sense of right and wrong, they no longer pay any attention to it. It's like they've lost their moral compass, which is extremely dangerous. We never want to be insensitive to our conscience. So we guard against insensitivity. At the same time, we guard our consciences against oversensitivity. So the very next verse, verse 3, talks about people in the church who were creating rules for the church that God had not given, like forbidding marriage and requiring abstinence from foods. And that wasn't good either, for people to impose their conscience on others when God had not spoken on that particular issue. And you or I may believe very strongly about school choice or politics or a host of other issues, But we must be very careful not to impose those matters of conscience on another Christian brother or sister unless God has spoken clearly on those things. You put all this together, I hope we're seeing the importance in our lives and in the church of a biblical picture of conscience. Just to review, your conscience is your sense of what you believe is right and wrong that guides what you live and die for. It's personal to you. It's imperfect. And needs to grow in maturity by being more and more calibrated around God's word, God's spirit, through learning from and loving others. Now, let's bring all of that then to a head. That's a lot of information. Let's bring it together. And I want to show you how Jesus uniquely relates to our conscience. And this is the part I've been looking forward to most today. Two final truths. Number one, Jesus is your only hope for a clean conscience. He's your only hope for a clean conscience. This is the gospel, and it is the greatest news in all the world. And I want to invite you, particularly if you're exploring Christianity, to listen very closely here. Every one of us has been created by God with a sense of right and wrong written on our hearts. Good and evil are not arbitrary or accidental. Morality is by divine design. And every single one of us has turned aside from God to ourselves, from what God says is right and wrong to what we think is right and wrong, to God said, what God said, from what God says is good and evil to what we think is good and evil. And the way we think and act and the Bible calls this turning from God sin. And our sin separates us from God. And the result of our sin in this world is death, eventual physical death for all of us. And then eternal spiritual death, experiencing separation from God forever and ever. But the good news of the Bible is that God loves us and God has not left us alone in this separation from him. God has come to us in the person of Jesus, and Jesus has done what no one else could ever do. Jesus lived a life, no sin, completely perfect. 
unlike any of us. And then, even though he had no sin to pay a price for, to die for, he chose to die on a cross to pay the price for the sins of anyone who would trust in him. Three days later, he rose from the grave in victory over sin and death, which means, so now follow this, this is the greatest news in all the world. For those of you who have never trusted in Jesus, I have good news for you Today, all of your guilt can be gone through faith in Jesus. If you will only trust in Jesus. I I know of no other religion in the world that makes this astounding claim. And it is true. When you turn from your sin and yourself and you trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord of your life, God himself forgives you of all of your sin. He wipes the whole slate clean, no matter what you have done. And God knows everything you have done. He wipes it all away the moment you place your faith in Jesus. All of your guilt is gone just like that by God's grace. And not just that, so as if that weren't enough, all of your guilt can be gone and all of God can be yours. You can be fully restored to relationship with God through faith in Jesus, fully restored to full, abundant life with God that will never, ever, ever end, that even when you die, you will live forever with him. All of God, I'm talking about God. All of God can be yours to enjoy forever and ever and ever. If you have never placed your faith in Jesus, I urge you, let today be the day. This moment be the moment. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. And today, like right now, through faith in him, he will wipe the slate of sin clean from your heart. And he will restore you to relationship with him for all of eternity. That is the best news in all the world. And God has brought some of you here today in this room, other locations, wherever you are in line, brought you to hear this right now that you might believe this and receive forgiveness and eternal life with God today. And then, and then, so keep going for those who have trusted in Jesus. Please listen closely here. I mentioned earlier, there are many of you who as Christians are constantly plagued by guilt. Maybe you're haunted by sin from your past. You're constantly maybe weighed down with sin that remains in the present. I'm besetting sin that you still struggle with. And in their book on conscience, Crowley and Nacelli use a picture that I thought was so helpful. It looks something like this. They describe how as we grow in the Christian life, we learn more and more and more knowledge from God's word. So just picture this line as knowledge of God's word. And we're growing to understand more and more and more what God desires for our lives, what God calls us to, to experience life. The problem is, at the same time, our obedience to God's word often just doesn't keep up at the same pace, particularly if we're in God's word every day, learning God's word, 
We're constantly saying we have so much room to grow. We just don't feel like we can ever catch up. And we still, like I said, struggle, different ones of us, with different besetting sins that we have a particularly hard time with, which means there's this gap between what we know and how we want to live. And they use this picture to make the point that if we're not careful, this gap can be so burdensome, so heavy, so discouraging. We think, I just, I can't keep up. I'll never get it. I'm never doing enough. We start to think, God is never pleased with me. I think this picture describes so many of our lives. It's at this point that they draw a cross right here to paint a clear picture of a reminder that we all need every single day that God's pleasure in us is not based on our performance for Him. That God's pleasure in us is based on Jesus' performance for us. He has died on the cross to cover over all of our sin. And His grace and mercy are sufficient to cover this gap in all of our lives, which we all need. In this 1 John 1 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to do what? To forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To forgive and cleanse us. So, so what do you do when your conscience and your inability to live up to God's word constantly weighs you down? Well, number one, 1 John 1, 9 says, you confess your sin continually. Like the whole point surrounding that verse in 1 John. And we, we've studied this as a church family. We've memorized 1 John chapter 1. So what we don't need to do is deny our sin, to pretend it isn't there, or defend it, rationalize it. The Bible says don't deny it and don't defend it. Instead, be honest with God about your sin. Like confess your sin continually. I sin. You sin. We all sin. We all need to be honest before God and with each other continually. We struggle with sin. So confess your sin continually. And as you do, then trust God's grace completely. Trust God's grace to cover over our sinfulness. Even when you look back, look back at 1 John 1.9. It's really interesting, isn't it? If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just. Why does it say those two attributes of God? I kind of expect that verse to say, if we confess our sins, God is gracious and merciful. That feels like it'd be a little more comforting. When I do something wrong, I don't think I want to go before a judge who's faithful to the law. So why is it comforting that God is faithful and just? Oh, here's why. Christian, don't, don't miss this. This goes back to trusting God's grace completely. When you trust in Jesus, you can know that God's faithfulness guarantees your forgiveness. 
God's faithfulness means that when you confess your your sins, God will always, always, always be faithful to forgive you. You can bank your life on that. If God were to refuse to forgive you, he would be unfaithful to you. And he is not unfaithful. He is faithful. So believe this, particularly when you are prone not to forgive yourself or not to believe that you're forgiven When the adversary tries to accuse you and beat you down for sin in your past or besetting sin in your present, you hold fast to this reality. God is faithful. He loves you and he forgives you completely. God's saying it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you're coming from doesn't matter where you've been. Hear me tell you, I forgive. You are not guilty anymore. You're not filthy anymore. I love you and my mercy is yours. You're not broken anymore. You're not captive anymore. I love you and my mercy is yours. Can you believe that this is true? Grace abundant, I am giving you, cleansing deeper than you know. All was paid for long ago. There is now, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. You are not guilty anymore. Just listen to these words. You are, God's saying to his people, all put your faith in Jesus. You are spotless. You are holy. You are faultless. You are whole. You are righteous. You are blameless. You are pardoned. You are mine. You are not guilty anymore. Jesus is your only hope for a clean conscience. And believe that in Jesus you have a clean conscience by which you can draw near to intimacy with God. Jesus is the only way to a clean conscience. And then final truth, Jesus is the only way to a good conscience. The only way to a conscience that makes possible intimacy with God and success in life and unity in the church and mission in the world. And Jesus is the only way to a good conscience that guides you to live and die for what matters most in this world. So here's how I want to close. Over the course of this series in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, we want to give you at least six questions to ask that I hope will practically help you as you make decisions on a daily basis, small things, and in big things, Lord willing, with a good, clean conscience. I'm going to give you the first two questions today, and then we'll pick up with them next week. So here's the first question we all need to ask if we want a good, clean conscience. We need to ask, number one, what does the Bible say about a particular decision or action, thought, desire? And wherever God has spoken clearly, we need to align our conscience with his word. But then, on issues where the Bible is not clear, on exactly what you need to do, then you need to ask a second question. And that question is, 
What does my conscience say? How do I sense as best as I can, based on God's word and God's spirit, that I should think or desire or do in this situation? Now the thing is, most people ignore this question, maybe even both these questions, or most people stop with this question and think, all right, I'm just going to do what seems right to me. But I want to show you over the coming weeks that there are at least four other questions we need to ask if we're actually going to live with a good, clear, clean conscience. So more on that next week. Let's pray. As we bow our heads all across this room and other locations, wherever you are online, I, I just... I want to give some of you right now, before God, an opportunity to have all of your guilt gone. To be restored to relationship with God right now for all of eternity. If you, if you do not know what it means to have a clean conscience before God, have not put your faith in Jesus in this way, I invite you right now your heads bowed, eyes closed, just to say to God in your heart, just to say to him right now, God, I know I've sinned against you. I know that because of my sin, I'm separated from you. But today I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sin. He rose from the dead in victory over sin. So today I'm asking you, please forgive me of all my sin. Please wipe the slate clean in my heart. And please restore me to relationship with you. Today I trust in Jesus as the Savior and Lord of my life. You pray that to him. You place your faith in him in that way right now. The God of the universe wipes the slate clean of sin in your heart. By faith in Jesus, he restores you to relationship with him forever. Oh God, we praise you for this reality. Even how this reality is playing out in hearts right now. How you are forgiving people of sin and you are drawing people to yourself right now. All glory be to your name for this grace. So we pray, God, help us to live in this. Help us to live in this grace to every single day. Live grace-driven, not guilt-ridden lives. Help us to trust your love for us. And out of the overflow of your grace in our lives, God, we pray that you would calibrate our conscience according to your word and your spirit, according to what is good for our lives, others' lives, and your glory in the world. We pray that over the coming weeks, you would teach us Grow us, mature us individually and as a church to have good, clean consciences before you that are ultimately bringing great glory to you and ultimately leading us to live and to die for what matters most in this world. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.
The following program is called The God of Abraham. Hello, everyone. This is Terry from The God of Abraham. Abraham went down to Egypt when a famine came in Canaan. When they arrived in Egypt, Abraham lied to the Egyptians by telling them that Sarah was his sister. The Egyptian, seeing Sarah's beauty, was taken away to Pharaoh's palace. Because of this, God sent plagues on Pharaoh and his house, which caused Pharaoh to return Sarah back when he discovered that she was Abraham's wife. Furthermore, Abraham experienced a miracle of not getting harmed and having his life spared after deceiving Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who was the king of the strongest nation at the time. Abraham survived the ordeal and went out of Egypt. According to Genesis chapter 13, verses 1 through 4, Abraham passed through Negev Desert and went to a place between Bethel and Ai. It was where his tent had been at the beginning and the place where he had built an altar when he was there the first time. And there Abraham again called on the name of the Lord. Calling on the name of the Lord signifies acknowledging the Lord is my God. Returning from having his life spared from Egypt, Abraham confessed that the Lord was his God. After that, something interesting happened. Here are verses 5-7 through from Genesis chapter 13. Now Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, and the land could not sustain them while dwelling together for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and Parasite were dwelling then in the land. Abraham was very rich in livestock and possessions as well as Lot, but the area where their livestock grazed was limited. Not only that, Canaanites and Parasites resided there as well, so it was very difficult to tend and feed the livestock. Eventually, Abraham and Lot separated their ways because of it. We should consider something at this point. Do you remember what God said to Abraham to leave when God first called him? God told Abraham to leave his country, his relatives, and his father's house. Abraham left the land where he lived and his father's house as well. But he did not leave one relative, a nephew named Lot. Of course, it was not in disobedience to God's command, but because Abraham regarded Lot as his own son. Because Abraham regarded Lot as his own son, God was creating circumstances that would cause Abraham to realize that he had to give up his relationship with Lot. As we see here what is happening to Abraham, we can learn how God allows events in our lives that will cause us to give up our own thoughts and desires as we try to understand God's will for us. We will talk more on that later again. Today, we are going to share the story of how Abraham and Lot part their ways. Let's read Genesis chapter 13 verses 8 through 10. So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right, or if to the right, then I will go to the left. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere, 
This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you go to Zor. The reason Lot chose the east was because the entire land had water everywhere. It was like the garden of the Lord, and it was like the land of Egypt. Lot chose the land that was pleasing to his eyes. Genesis shows from the beginning that difficulties come when we choose something that is pleasing to our eyes. Though that does not mean that everything that is pleasing to the eye is bad. Choosing something that was pleasing to the eyes means they made decisions and chose things only by their outward appearances. That means they chose things without consideration. More importantly, without consulting God and according to humanly desires. That is why when we choose something, the standard should not be by our own desires, but those that are true, righteous, godly, holy, clean, and are the things that are pleasing to God. Let's continue to share verses. Genesis chapter 13 verses 14 through 17 are very important verses. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see I will give to you and to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. First, this is the point in time when God's requirements to Abraham to leave his country, relatives, and father's house and go to the land where God was going to show Abraham were fully obeyed. He left the land he lived in. He left his father's house, but his blood relative Lot was still with him. But a situation developed that caused them to part ways. When God's requirements were met, the time came for God to show Abraham the land that he had promised. God again speaks to Abraham and promising to him says, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. All the land which you see I will give to you and your descendants forever. And I will also make your descendants as the dust of the earth. As if God was waiting for this moment, the Bible records God's appearing to Abraham in verse 14 when Lot left Abraham. From this, we can see that there are orders and processes that need to take place in order for God's promise to be fulfilled. Those orders and processes will not be ignored. And another thing to consider is that Abraham must have been depressed at the time because he had to part ways with Lot. He must have felt empty, disappointed, and sad because he had to send off a family member in a foreign country. Furthermore, it was Lot whom Abraham regarded as a son. Do you think God did not know that? No, he knew. That is why God comforted Abraham. It's okay, Abraham. Lot is not your son. I will give a son to you. Your descendants will be as numerous as dust on the earth. Can you count all the dust on the earth? You can't, right? Yet, your descendants will be as numerous and countless, so don't be too sad. Arise and walk. Go around the land I am giving to you. Don't you hear God speaking to Abraham in comfort like that? By the way, when God spoke to Abraham in verse 14, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, what do you think God's tone was like? Do you think it was majestic and authoritative, as if commanding over? Or was it soft, as if comforting a child? There is one Hebrew word missing in verse 14. 
There are versions of Bible that translated the word as it is, and there are other versions that did not translate. That Hebrew word is na. The Hebrew word na has meaning please. An ASB version used this word in Genesis chapter 13 verses 8 and 9 when Abraham spoke to Lot. So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right, or if to the right, then I will go to the left. So when God said to Abraham to lift up his eyes and look, God was not commanding him majestically, but rather God is saying, Abraham, please lift up your eyes and look at this land. All this land I am giving to you. Aren't you happy? Why don't you walk about it? This is the land I will give to you and your descendants forever. What is even more amazing is that God used the word na, the word please, only four times to humans. He used it three times to an individual and once to the nation. The nation was Israel. The individual God used the word three times was Abraham. It must mean that Abraham was that much special to God. The Hebrew word na can be translated as please, but it can be also translated as now. There are 181 instances the word was used to mean please, 159 times to mean now, and 16 times to mean pray. Some versions of the Bible translate verse 14 as now lift up your eyes, but in the context of the conversation, it seems more appropriate that God spoke to Abraham with the word please and talked to him gently. Anyway, God spoke to Abraham who was depressed in such a gentle way and gave him comfort and encouragement. Actually, when we read these verses, we can feel that God is somewhat excited when we read what happened before and what happens after. God ordered Abraham to leave his country, his relatives, and his father's house so he could show Abraham the land he promised. Abraham took Lot with him, went down to Egypt, had his wife taken away, and experienced God's intervention. Then he came back where he first arrived, and now he is separated from Lot. Though at the time Abraham did not realize it, all the things that God required of Abraham were fulfilled. Now God appeared to Abraham as if he had been waiting for this very moment and spoke to him. Now, now, Abraham, why don't you lift up your eyes? Don't be sad. Even though Lot left, I will give you a son of your own that will be your happiness and your descendants will be as numerous and countless, and they will all live in the land. So why don't you walk about the land? Walk around. I am giving it to you. Aren't you happy? We can almost feel that God was happier and even more excited for Abraham. It is because this was the moment when God's detailed and precious work of providing a means of salvation for mankind has started. But Abraham's response was somewhat indifferent. The last verse of chapter 13, verse 18 says, Then Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. He did not respond by walking about the land, saying, You are giving all this land to me? But after hearing God's word that he will give the land that Abraham walks about, he moved his tent and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre in Hebron. We saw the oaks last time as well, right? It was the Oaks of Moray in chapter 12. It was where divinities were performed and idols were worshipped. 
It was the same for the Oaks of Mamre. It was where idols were worshipped. But there was a change. In chapter 12, when God appeared to Abraham at the Oaks of Moreh, Abraham built the altar and left that area and lived in the east of Bethel. But this time, Abraham went into the midst of them, built an altar for God, and lived there. It shows how Abraham became a bit more courageous and showed a little change in him. Spirits transform greatly after experiencing such small changes. I hope we can all experience such small changes every day. Have a peaceful week. We will see you again next time. Goodbye. We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.